Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And we are thrilled to invite you to a live virtual screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Live? Live. It's live. It's going out now. Transmit now. No, it's not actually <laughs> going out now. It's going out on Saturday, April 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific this time. Thank you. Pacific time, indeed. Uh, Stardate. I don't know. But, <laughs> I don't remember this. <laughs> but this exclusive screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, produced in association with Paramount Pictures, will be a full-length audio commentary followed by Q&A with Darren and I as we tell stories from behind the scenes of Wrath of Khan, as well as our own personal stories. And we want to hear yours as you experience Wrath of Khan for the first time in 1982. It'll and be, maybe uh, a goofy voice or two. Maybe. Although Gene didn't have much to do with Star Trek 2, so I don't know if Gene Well, I be... think we'll be hearing about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really excited about this, and we look forward to you joining us on Saturday, April 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on CLive Live using your Google Chrome browser to join us for an exclusive screening of Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, and find out what it's like to be buried alive. Buried, buried alive. Buried alive. Mark! See you on April 25th. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman from Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a James Bond fan, you want to pick up my new book, Nobody Does It Better, the complete uncensored oral history of James Bond and Spy Mania. It's a hefty tome, and it's available now wherever you purchase books, audiobooks, and digital. Check it out, and I will renew your license to kill personally. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with Steve Melching, Darren Docterman, Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The only on way tape. to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is right. to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. Yeah. Coming right. soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. <laughs> Ash wow. Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today, we're going back to the future. We're going <laughs> back to where it all started, the original series. Um, and we're so lucky to have with us um, a man who worked on the original series, who was um, there where it all happened, who can talk about, uh, separate the reality from the fantasy. And of course, I'm talking about uh, uh, Barry Mason. Barry Mason was um, worked at Film Effects of Hollywood, uh, which was one of the three visual effects houses that worked on the original Star Trek. Um, it was uh, under the aegis of the great Linwood Dunn. Now, uh, the Academy uh, th screening room is named after uh, mm -hmm. Linwood Dunn. Um, and we're so happy to have you with us. It's, you know, so many people talk about Star Trek. They reflect on Star Trek. So few people who are actually there. You were there. Welcome. Um, 
And so welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And we also have back with us the writer of uh, such films as Thor and X-Men First Class. Uh, he has been a writer-producer on shows like Fringe and Lore and uh, Black Sails. Mr. Ashley E. Miller. Welcome back, Ashley. He was not involved on the original Star Trek. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, thank you for having me. So, um, so yeah, Barry, if you will, tell us a little bit. I mean, you sort of kind of emerged back into uh, Star Trek lore when <laughs> you were... Mark Cushman published a series of books a few years ago, and on the cover of one of the books is you holding the clapperboard as um, they're photographing the model of the original Enterprise. And uh, if I remember, it was um, uh, your daughter who contacted Mark to say, hey, that's my dad. That's right. A a friend of ours had given a copy of his book to to the parents. And the parents uh, were friends of ours also. Mm -hmm. But it it was back when I was 24 years old or five. And I don't look the same. Uh, but, but one of that family said, you know, I think that's Barry. Uh, and he wow. worked on Star Trek, didn't he? And so one night we were over at dinner and they brought the book out and showed it to me. And I said, yeah, yeah that's me. That's and I knew it was me because of my tie. I was the only one in the company that wore a tie. So <laughs> it had to be me. That's funny. Well, now, when you graduated from UCLA uh, with a film degree, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, you started working at Film Effects of Hollywood. What do you remember about that era of, uh, obviously they were doing a lot of effects, mostly visual effects were for features at the time. There wasn't a lot of TV work. There weren't a lot of sci-fi shows and mostly Westerns and cop shows and stuff. But Star Trek was pioneering, you know, far beyond what Lost in Space was doing or anyone else was doing, sort of cinema quality. I mean, this is even before Kubrick in 2001. And, you know, what do you remember sort of about your experience of uh, being there and, and working on Star Trek? Well, uh, first, uh, 2001 was the first movie we were working on when I first went to work there. Oh. So I got some experience with that. Oh, really? And uh, I know the real reason that he ended the film the way he did. Most people have reasons that are you know, from the movie. But I was sitting right there when he told my boss that he was quitting because he ran out of ideas. And, that was, <laughs> wow. and he rented all of our equipment. He returned it. And, but I, I didn't hear it directly, but like t- 10 seconds after when my boss hung up the phone and told me. So th- that's the real reason. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this was Stanley Kubrick. Not oh, Kubrick. yeah. He was talking right to Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you heard it first. That's in glorious Kubrick spurts. That's so. uh, amazing. Um, so, you know, uh, tell us what you remember about the experience of, um, because, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and that picture is, is, is so legendary. Anytime you see that original Enterprise model being photographed, and what people don't realize is it wasn't photographed a hell of a lot, you know. Um, uh, it's composited into a bunch of um, other shots. T- tell us what you remember about the you working on Star Trek. Was it just another show at the time that was com- keeping the lights on? or Well, no, because it was... The only show that had to be done on a schedule. Mm-hmm. The motion pictures, you know, you could be a day or two late. Nobody cared, if even a week late. But this show had to be out every week. Right. And uh, so for the three years that the show was going, I was probably I worked from let's say eight in the morning to midnight, mm-hmm. and and I think even on Saturday. So it was mm-hmm. it was a time-consuming thing, and, and everything was rush, rush. You're always getting calls. 
hey, where's that scene and where's this scene? And mm. said, well, you just gave it to us yesterday. We can't do it so quick. <laughs> and one of the reasons for that was because it was theatrical quality. We didn't uh, use uh, uh, the cheaper techniques, which were available even then, mm. uh, where you could uh, make the film with copied film. There's, they made films that were made just to duplicate original negatives. So uh, the quality of that was okay, but it wasn't. It would have been actually. It would have been fine for television, right. but uh, for some reason they wanted it theatrical. So what we had to do was shoot the original, take their the the um, producer's film, and separate it into three pieces of film: one exposed black, all black and white; one mm -hmm. through a blue, red, and green filter, and then do the special effects with that. And by doing that, it meant you had to do the shot three times because you had to reproduce it three, with three different wow. strips of film. And then when it was done, then you'd re, uh, you, would, you would expose those three black and white films to a new piece of color film, which would then put the color back and in an excellent quality. I mean, it was, you could absolutely show it in a theater. Wow. And, uh, so that cost a lot more money. I don't know what the cost was, but I know it was a lot more. And uh, for some reason, uh, who was the producer? I, well, I, we had a guy named Milken, who used to, or Milkus. 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 Yeah, Ed Milkus. used to come around. And that's what they wanted. And so, of course, if they were paying, well, that's what sure. we gave them. Sure. And uh, at the end, I heard the reason they stopped the show was it was too expensive. And right. And I'm sure some of it was from the work we did because they, <laughs> they would have us do things over and over again for very minor improvements. Right. And then using this three-strip process, that in itself costs a lot more money. So I would imagine. Yeah, I would think if they had they done it just as a, like for television quality, could have been done probably half or less than half. Right. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, and you guys were doing, you know, very extensive blue screen oh, yeah, yeah. work yeah. on that. And a lot of times, you know, things would be shot just in front of black and do double exposures behind it, and no. that would be fine. But this was extremely involved, especially oh, yeah, yeah. for television work. Yeah, yeah. We, it was, we had a bi real big blue screen. And in fact, it's in that, the cover of the sure. book. It's, it was probably 50 feet long and 30 feet high. It was, it was And I love seeing big. the pictures of it because it looks like each time you brought in something, you would add bits to the, you add bits to the blue screen and extend it and extend it on the floor. And, oh, on the floor, yeah. yeah. But the width and length and vertical was the same. Right. It was always one right. big piece. But, I, you know, I, I love seeing those uh, scenes. And uh, the footage of the, specifically the Enterprise miniature being shot with you know the poor guy laying with his shirt off, uh, running the uh, running the the camera head that it was mounted on, yeah. you know the the uh, the uh, uh, the wheels to turn the Enterprise just slightly as the camera would move in, so that it looked like it was t uh, turning. It's just fascinating. Is this before the days of motion control that were pioneered? It, oh, it was all done on. by hand. We, we did have hand. we had a little bit of uh, servo motors. Right, we quit, but I don't recall if they were on that particular right. um, head. It was a, a called a Warrell head. It mm. was a big, big thing, and it was very precise. You could turn it if you turn these wheels over. Right, it would move the head very, just incrementally, very and smooth as just as right. smooth as glass. Right, and on some of those, they would add a motor that we had. We could handhold another motor mm -hmm. connecting to that motor, and if you turned that a wheel on that remote motor, it would 
turn the one on the uh, right. head. So you could you didn't have to be in the frame. You, right. you could be standing back a little bit. Well, it's kind of a misnomer to call the Enterprise uh, a miniature because, of course, it was so big. It was pretty big. Um, right. How unwieldy was it to shoot? Once it was on the uh, the tripod head, that ORL head, mm-hmm. it was no problem. We, of course, kept it vertical. Right. Because it, uh, that head had, it was reverse geared, so to move the head itself was real hard. If you ran it through the little wheels, which were geared up for mm-hmm. it, then it was easy. So it, it really wasn't hard to do. It took a few people to get it onto the head, I remember that. Sure, I'll bet. I know we had Bill George on a couple of weeks ago from ILM, and he was uh, responsible for restoring, in part with other people, the miniature for the Smithsonian. And says, you know, there's still damage that model from where the camera hit that chipped the paint on the on the on the on the ship. If I don't remember us hitting, <laughs> but, but remember it was done by three different companies. Yeah. So sure. I know we were very careful with it, and I was there most of the time. It was in our studio, right. and. I'd see it every day. It was right near where we had lunch, so it was just sitting there, and everyone was careful because we. Sure. It was it was so big. We we dealt with other miniatures for other shows. In fact, more other miniatures in this show, uh, but they were all small. You could mm-hmm. hold them in your hand. Sure. But uh, this one was. We were all impressed with it. Did you know you were working on something? Like it's hard to say. Fifty years ago, yeah. fifty years, you'd be talking about it. Fifty years later, but did did you think this was something special or just another TV show when you were working on? Oh it? no, no, I knew it was good. I mean, I, I used to run home every night, not every night. Thir- I believe it was on Thursday nights, mm-hmm. and to watch it, I had to be home at eight o'clock, and and I used to just make it, and uh, <laughs> to see how our effects were doing. Sure. Right. And, and of course, I get involved with the stories too, but I used to see, I, I wanted to see how well. What we did showed up on the screen, and I oh. thought it all did. It was good. What there was one mistake, one show, where it uh, they did those color separations, where mm-hmm. it was, and it was a big rush at the end, and they they wanted it done differently, and for some reason they got it out of sync. So the first image of this little uh, what was it, the shuttle, space, one of those little shuttles mm-hmm. they called it, uh, was the yellow image, and it just kind of little guy took off, and right behind it was the red, and then the blue, or oh. the colors that could be off, but right. you, you could actually see it as three lights. Oh, and and I was surprised they put it in. I just figured they would not put it in, but they did. Well, people and, don't people don't realize that um, television used to not look very good <laughs> um, back in the back in the day before we had uh, you know DVDs and even VHS. Television, you were lucky to have a good signal at all. You know, if you if you struggled with the <laughs> antenna um, to see it, and you know, people who uh, people who remember watching it in those days, um, you're lucky to get a picture at all. But still, the fact that you guys were doing movie quality for TV when you could have gotten away with much less. Yeah, that's what much I'm saying. less. It didn't have to be shot. It didn't as have good as to, it was. but but you did, and that's what. That's I think that's one of the reasons why we still have it today, mm-hmm. um, and even even for the fact that they went back and did uh, you know redos of some of the effects on the original show, I still look at the original effects because I yeah. love them so much because mm-hmm. they're so beautiful, and they're so well lit, and it's so it 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 makes you feel like you're there, and it's. And I, I think that the reason that they ended up doing the new effects more than anything had to do with the just the fact that because of the resolu- the optical going through the optical pl- printer so many times that it, it was so when they remastered them it was so clearly a step down from the HD and ultimately the 4K because of the 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 um, 
the blurriness the and, and, and the yeah. resolution. It wasn't that the effects themselves didn't right. hold up. Except that, yeah, the, the dupiness of you yeah. know constantly going back yeah. and recompositing things for different episodes. And if they had stuck to just fixing that. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And and now you could you really could sharpen up that image and and clean up uh, you know some of that um, digitally and it, you know it, it, rather than because it's funny because now you look at the new effects the, the CG effects they did 15 years ago and they date worse than oh my god like anything. the Doomsday Machine looks yeah I I don't know why I even did it to tell you the truth <laughs> yeah. I mean there's no reason I mean there's, there's nothing wrong with the original film do you. How I, you know, uh, for a lot of our audience that may not realize the difference between why there were three effects houses on the original Star Trek and how what each effect house did was different or, or had a different specialty. Can you talk about you know what uh, film effects of Hollywood did on the original Star Trek and you know why there by necessity needed to be three different effects houses? It was strictly because there was a show out every week and it was an hour long show. Uh, you, it was impossible to do. One every week. So mm-hmm. even when we were doing it, it went, and I can only speak for our company, sure. but but we had one out every three week, three weeks. Mm-hmm. And and at that, that, like I'm saying, I was I would, for one was working those big long hours. So were other people, and we just made it. I mean, I would get the film. I one of my jobs was to take the film to the lab at night because I was the only one that was would stay that late. Right. And uh, I would have it set up with the laboratories. Technicolor was the main one. Mm-hmm. That I, where I knew all the people developing the film and printing it, right. so I would call from our place as soon as I realized I would have it, like in a half an hour. I would call and I would talk to the head of each department, and I'd say, "Hey, I'm going to be there at 11:30, mm-hmm. and so will you send one of your guys down to pick the film up there?" Right. And I said, "I got to have it at eight in the morning, no question." And I would always say that. And then he'd say, "Okay, I'll have it ready." And then I said, "Okay, now transfer me to the guy in the printing department." And I'd tell him, "Okay, I'm having to film over to Nick or whoever the other guy was." And he said he promised it would be done at twelve thirty, wow. develop just a negative. And then would you please run over to him or call him and have him take it to you? But so as soon as you get it, like by one o'clock. You can print it and have it ready for me downstairs. You know when I come in the morning, and that's how they would do it. Well, anyway, that was going on for every single every single uh, uh, episode, right. and it just made it. Like I said, that one where the three strips got put in, it was mm-hmm. because same thing. I, we got it to the lab right. just in time, and they had to put it in that way, and nobody could fix it an 18 day schedule what yeah. you're talking yeah about so that's why is in the optical world in oh yeah in in it's yeah amazing. in the photochemical world an 18 day schedule for basically oh, yeah. an hour show is unbelievably tough yeah and unbelievably so, so that's, tough. that's the reason it took three yeah and there's one company couldn't well i suppose some big company but all the effects companies in those days were small companies right so they didn't have the staff sure. to uh to do because there wasn't show enough week. work out right there. right yeah and and also we weren't none of us were work did much television so sure. the, the pressure on us was just overwhelming because we were used to the movie business right. which was well if can you have it for me in two days and right. okay we can have it in two days but not tomorrow or even the same right. day right, right. Yeah. so there there was uh, film effects mm-hmm. and there was Westheimer Westheimer and I don't remember the third one yeah. I honestly don't if I don't I remember the, name, the third one. <laughs> I don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, incredible. And obviously, each episode didn't have the same amount of 
work in them. That's but they were all sort of comparable with each other, except yeah. for, you know, maybe a couple every season that had a ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah there was some do. that had a lot. Yeah. That had more than usual. Um, I know that I guess the Doomsday Machine had probably the most effects shots, and that was in uh, the second season. Um, but, yeah, uh, the, that's just a that's a breakneck pace for doing any of that stuff. And I'm... Oh, the I, Howard I, Anderson I Company. Howard Anderson. That that's it. it. Okay. Right. And he, he, that was in Paramount. Right. Howard Anderson was part of Paramount Studios, which is where the film was shot. It could have been Desi Luden. I, I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember. But it was a current location is Paramount. Right. And then you guys just worked on the space effects, the Enterprise. You didn't work on anything like the phasers? Or, no, or, we did the phasers. We did the phasers. Yeah, we used a, a woman would animate that, and they used a machine called a... Um, Oh, I just had it. Uh, rotoscope. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, so she was a, a rotoscope artist. Nice. And I worked with her all the time. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of that. And not only that, that's, she, I believe she might have done those sparkles, you know, that oh, came down. Oh, the transporter. Effect. Yeah, right. the transporter. And um, I don't, I'm not positive about that. But we also had shots, which actually in the book, you know, which were paintings. They were called matte paintings. Right, yeah. And that, I knew that artist. He worked at uh, Universal most of the time. Yeah, Al, Al Whitlock. Yeah, Whitlock. Yeah. Yeah, nice guy. And he would bring these big paintings. They were about three feet by four or five right. with a little notch cut into them, all black. Accident, and yeah. we would shoot whatever was shot. We would combine the original shot into that blank space of these um, cities. Most of them were futuristic cities. Sure. True works of art. I mean, you could hang those in a museum. Oh, they were good. They're re- real good paintings. Yeah, a- absolutely gorgeous. And the 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 different kinds of shots that you guys had to do is, you know, the entire range of effects work. You, you know, working with models, working with matte paintings, working with optical effects. Um, and just to explain what the rotoscope uh, was for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, it's basically a... It's basically a combination of a projector and a camera. camera yeah. And it's basically using the same lens. You project the film that you're putting the effect on, and you see the frame in front of you, and you take and you draw basically on either acetate or paper. It was acetate cells. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you, you draw where, you know, what the effect is going to be. If it's a laser beam, you paint basically a line on it. And then... You take that and you rephotograph it in exactly the same registration with your with, with your shot, and that gives you the element to double expose over the original yeah, negative. Exactly, and it's it's incredibly tedious yeah, to yeah, do. Well, yeah, she and so much whole, work. And like a laser would only be on like two seconds, if, right. if two, probably one second. Right. And so that would be in those days twenty four frames right. per second. So right. she would have to do twenty four yeah. individual. Uh, cells, yeah. and probably did a few extras, but uh, and then the at process of rephotographing it and yeah. adding the gels or diffusion or whatever oh, yeah. to get that effect on the uh, on the original shot is just so complicated, and people have yeah. no conception these days no, no, as no. to how hard it was. No, I mean you know, and that's why it's like you hear all these things about budget. We can only fire a phaser so many times right. or do this. You know, now this it's just why. computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, now it's, that, that kind of stuff is so easy to do. Relatively. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, back then, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the network was pushing 
uh, more planets and more action, but you know, every time you went to a planet, you had to build it or had to do a map painting to establish right. it, and 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 that's why also you see so much stock footage where sure. map paintings are repeated or shots of the Enterprise are repeated. It's just you could even if you had the money, the time alone, you right. couldn't keep up with the demands of the schedule. Right, right. It was uh, it was just very hard. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember looking at that picture of you standing there? Anything about? That day, you know, or or when that, you know, just what was going on in that photo at the time that you're, you know, well, we we didn't have to s- s- close it. I just yeah. held it because, because there's no, yeah. Yeah, no sound. Yeah, <laughs> there's no sound. But it was, I, you know, I don't recall that particular shot, but sure. we shot a lot of it. So in one day, I could have done that scene twenty times. You know? sure. So I wouldn't remember exactly that one and we did by we they you know to make it look like it was going into the stars you sh- you move it forward and so we did those and then we shoot some backwards then turn the thing and do it again and it just it was it was actually boring because it was repetitive you just over kept doing again. the same basic shots but just more and more and, and more. what were the star fields and, uh, okay that was this big black this blue screen took about two weeks to do that because we had to punch little holes in it, and I told you how big it was. So we, they had ladders, you know, we were just walking around with ladders, punching holes, and then you had to go and with just regular scotch tape, tape pieces of gel of those all the different colors, so blue, red, green, yellow, I suppose it was yellow. I forgot all the colors, but mm-hmm. so it took a long time to go on a 50-foot long by 30 feet high piece of paper and not fall through it and break it. So it was, wow. so it was a little slow and tedious, but that's that's how you get all the colors. Then we just lit it with white light, mm-hmm. but uh, the light was going through all these colored filters. Wow! And then you did like multiple passes on it. Oh yeah, yeah. And that same thing. Became, well, no, right in the original photography, we wow. would we would reshoot, just move the camera forward, and then just do it backwards, and then do it again forward and back. Wow. And uh, it was just to get a lot of different potential sure. shot, stock shots. It's like right. made stock shots. And some you and pan then, to the right, some yeah, yeah, some the a little panning, right. yeah. Now you talked about, you know, obviously day to day, Eddie Milkus was there, but did you do you recall ever a Roddenberry or Justman being there? No, I, the only one I absolutely don't is, is uh, Milken. Mm-hmm. Milkus. Milkus, I think it was Eddie Milkus. Milkus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Mil- I mix up Milken with the right. The <laughs> Eddie Milkis did not sell junk bonds. No, right. that's correct. As far as, as we know, my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. or start an elementary school in the valley. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, was, what was it like with some of the other ministers? Because you talked about, you know, obviously the, the enterprise is very large, yeah. but but some of these other ministers were much smaller. Yeah. We know, you know, obviously focus issues, things like that, but. Um, do you remember much about the other miniatures other than sh- shooting them, other than the Enterprise? Well, mostly that they were real small. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe two feet long mm-hmm. and uh, maybe a foot wide, something like that. You could just pick them up in your hand. Right. But we shot them exactly the same. We'd mount them on this uh, this uh, tripod head, mm-hmm. which was weighed a ton, and uh, put it against that. Same with that background, just zoom in and out. Right. And... Um, and I believe we might have shot some with just black backgrounds, just so that we could put it wherever, we, if in case they didn't need the star field. Because mm-hmm. once it was shot with the star field, you were stuck with that film. Sure. And uh, some of them, the uh, the uh, people that made Star Trek didn't know themselves what they wanted. Sure. So they couldn't tell us to shoot it just 
going here, you know, or there, because <laughs> right. they would sometimes they'd substitute a planet. They might want a planet behind them. Right. So it, that had to be against the uh, the blue screen, not the black screen. Or so being a giant could, space amoeba. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've I've seen in person one of the planets that you guys shot. Mm. Um, it was on display at some museum around here, and it was fairly small. It was like about eighteen inches in diameter, something like that, and. Uh, Covered in a layer of uh, plaster, yeah, and then painted to get the, to get to get the, the texture uh, on yeah. it, and then uh, painted, and then you guys just put that in front of the thing and just spun it around. Okay, that, right, that's yeah. probably how we did it. Yeah, I don't recall. I don't recall the planets. But sure, we. It's, but that's the, really the fun thing about it, in certainly the first season, is that every every time every time you see a different episode and the Enterprise going around a different planet. It's the same planet, but you tinted it different colors yeah. to, to make use of that original footage. That's right. And w- what a you know what a great relatively easy way of using that footage that you don't have to shoot again. Yeah. And and you know getting the most bang for the buck. Um, well, we had one one of the uh, episodes. If you recall, every episode started with two people on the side of a screen, mm-hmm. and the screen inside the ship. That was their, their standard shot. Yeah, that was the yeah. opening. And so that was done with the blue screen. And it was right. one, one episode it was really annoying because they would tell us, okay, we want a red planet in there. Right. So we shoot it with a red planet. And the next morning, someone from Star Trek would be there, and they would say, well, why'd you sh- shoot it with a red planet? And we say, well, because that's what you wrote it. We have the order. <laughs> it says a red planet. No, he says, I'm the art director. I, I have to, it's supposed to be blue. Redo it. So we redo it. Next day, he'd come another, not him, another director of something. And he'd say, Oh, it's good, but why is it blue? And it says, Well, because your art director from yesterday said it was supposed to be blue, even though it was done red the first time. And this guy would say, But I'm the scenic director, or (laughs) and it's supposed to be yellow. And so redo it. And, And this went out like five times. I didn't know they had all these different. Directors, you know, art mm. scene, uh, and and at f- and at the end, whatever color it was, it was at least the five fifth yeah, color. Right. So I go home that night, the Thursday, to see why they needed it, right. whatever the final color was, that's, and that's and odd. they don't mention it the whole movie. The whole movie goes <laughs> by, <laughs> and I, they never said we're <laughs> heading toward a red planet right. or a green planet. So that oh all this goodness. money that they're they're paying for it because right. they, they're the ones that told us it was not our mistake. Right. And so, and so they would give you change orders. Yeah, change get, orders. Yeah, that's paid for that. And, and so they pay. And, and in this case, they don't they do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But that's one of those expense things yeah. that they didn't, they weren't aware of money at all, I right. guess. And in this case, the only reason I cared was that they, they'd never even mentioned it. At least had they right. mentioned it, you know, we were heading toward that yellow planet. Oh, that's so the whole movie goes by, and it could have been the very first <laughs> shot. It would have been no problem. Right. And uh, Did Jerry Fetterman, the DP, ever come by? Was he somebody? And if he did, I didn't know, because those fellows would talk to my bosses, Dun- Lynn Dunn, mm-hmm. and it was to another fellow, Cecil Love. Right. He was my direct boss. So they would talk to, we'd call him the customer. So, right, so right. Uh, I never would hear directly why we were doing anything. You right. Know? Yeah. Right. And were you there for the duration of? Well, oh Star yeah, Trek? I stayed the whole time. Mm-hmm. And 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 how was special effects kind of uh, your your passion, or was it just where you fell in after film school? 
more or less, I, I wanted to be a director of photography. I, right. was, I was interested in cameras and lighting and all mm-hmm. that. And so this place allowed me to do that because right. I could. They had all kinds of amazing cameras, most of them from the past. When they would get a job for something, let's say that was shot in Vista Vision, right. you remember? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sure. That's horizontal, sideways. sideways. Yeah. Incredible well, Vista well, Vision. These guys, they didn't have it, but they knew Linwood Dunn. They knew he knew everybody, sure. and so he'd say, "Yeah, no problem. You do a Vista Vision." And he'd call Tech. In this case, he called Technicolor, who had their old three-strip Technicolor cameras, which right. are really amazing. And uh, someone in the past had taken one of those and converted it to VistaVision. So they send it to our place, and we get in, and nobody in our company could reach in and load the thing. It was Uh, so tight in there, and my hands apparently were small enough that I could do it. (laughs) And and I like doing that anyway. I would load their cameras. I wasn't supposed to. But uh, this was a neat camera to load. It was very tricky, and it was a Technicolor camera that had this, uh, like, historical significance for me that... That this is where color really started in the movies. I mean, good color, and it was amazing quality. I mean, just the machinery—you know how well it was machined and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember I was—they'd always have to call me over to load the camera for them. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, it's, that's it's, very cool. Um, so what did you what did you do after after Star Trek? Well, that's a whole new career. You, that's what that's what'll show up in this movie. Nice. But I got into dialysis, you know, which is artificial kidney treatment, right. and uh, I invented something for that. And that the company bought it and wanted me to build them three hundred of these machines. So I had wow. to quit uh, the movies. Although I offered Lynn Dunn the uh, option of keeping me if we'd get right. me into union. Right. But right. he was the head of the cameraman's union. Right. He could have got me in. But he, you know, he he told me he was Scotch, and Scotch people are cheap, which I didn't know. And so he said, so it was either paying me more to keep me right. or let me go. So he wow. decided to just let me go. And then, you know, this is a whole nother life, but then you opened the Circus of Books, which is that famous here in that, yeah. uh, Los Angeles. And recently your daughter made a documentary yeah. about your, the, this, and it's debuting on Netflix this year, 2020. Next year, yeah. yeah. Well, well, this year. When it airs, <laughs> oh, it will be. We're, we're recording this for the future. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Good, we're okay. in the future right now. Right yeah, now. we're okay. already living in the future. So, uh, so uh, she did this documentary, was critically acclaimed documentary. And how did you end up uh, being uh, with a, a bookstore, very you know beloved bookstore at that? Yeah, that's what it is. It turned out it was more beloved, as you use that word. It's a good word. Uh, than we thought it was. I mean, to us it was a business. and right. uh, But uh, that came after my dialysis business. Mm-hmm. And uh, it um, it was just an opportunity that came up. Uh, before I got in, when I was in the dialysis business, but uh, I became the head of five different dialysis uh, units where each place location had 20 beds and so I was their chief technician I would teach the people how to repair the machines and the nurses how to use them and and uh, while doing that I would invent things that would help the process right. move along and uh, at one point um, my oh okay I was sell when I sold my equipment the F, the government wasn't involved, so I could invent things, take them to a hospital, show it to them, and if mm-hmm. they liked it, they could try it, and if they really liked it, they would buy it. And 
in, in, like in 1974 or five, the FDA starts getting involved. And uh, FDA is not an easy group to deal with. And so, and medical malpractice insurance started getting sure. going up. So I wasn't making any money. I was having to spend all my money on uh, insurance right. and then uh, having to deal with the FDA. So I sold my equipment to uh, a Dutch company, medical company, and mm. they could deal with the FDA. Right. And uh, the very next morning after I'd sold everything, my wife comes in and shows me a big ad for Hustler magazine that they were looking for <laughs> distributors, and that they had lost they had lost their contract with the big national distributor, which was right. selling it. And uh, I don't, have no idea why, but that's what the ad was for. And then you know, it was an eight hundred number, and so I called it, and they said, "Oh yeah, you just have to order uh, twenty five hundred magazines, and it's guaranteed sale. If you don't sell it, we'll take it back." Wow. And uh, and uh, what was it? I had to have an order in like in a day or two. Mm -hmm. So I get up and I just went to liquor stores all around where I lived in Culver City, made like just a spiral circle. And at the end of the day, I had 2,500 orders. Everybody wow. wanted that. It was apparently a popular magazine. I, I hadn't <laughs> I had heard of it, but I never saw it. And so I called them and they said, oh, I said, okay, here's my order for 2,500. And they said, well, you have to wire it. And I, they told me how to do that. And I wired them the money. Because I had the money then, since I just sold right, right. medical did equipment. Business. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then the next day, I said to my wife, "You know, I got twenty five hundred in one day. Why don't I just expand my circle?" And so I went out and I got another twenty five hundred. The next, just that day, so I called them, and they said, "We'll take the order, but you can't, we missed the print run for this month. So you'll get your twenty five, and we'll give you five thousand the next run." I said, "All right." So I wired the money for that. And then I, of course, had a problem. What do I do with double the number of orders right. for what I'm going to get? And uh, it dawned on me, okay, I'll just cut everybody in half. I'll just say to all the dealers, look at this one month only, I can only give you half. Right. And um, almost all of them stuck with me. I had like 65 accounts. Wow. And so I had 5,000 magazines I'm selling. So you were a hustler, hustler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so then... That's when this doctor calls me, right after I got, I believe I may have either done that first order or maybe I didn't even do it yet. And he says, you know, I'm, I gotta have someone like you to run my dialysis centers, and can you work for, for me? So I says, yeah, but you gotta give me two days a month off. And uh, in those days, beepers had just come out. Right. And, and all it did was beep. Right. So you had to stop, call a number, find out who was beeping you, and then either call them, yeah. or if they stayed on the line, the operator would connect mm -hmm. you. So he said, yeah, well, he would do that. So we, so that's what's happening. So for several years, I was running this Very route of two days, and uh, and then one of my accounts was this bookstore, Circus of Books. Right. And the Circus of Books sold so many magazines, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'd actually almost have to load a whole van up just for them. Right. And when I would get there, the people, the customers would come out and help me unload it even. I mean, it was, it was an amazing <laughs> store, really. I'd, I'd be parked right out in front, and these guys are helping me unload. And, and then after a few years, well, it was actually about five years, the uh, owner started taking cocaine at some point, and he wasn't paying anybody, including me. Mm. And so he, he uh, I met his manager one day walking down the street in front of my house. Mm -hmm. This is so many coincidences. and. So I run out and I say, hey, Bill, what's going on? Why, why aren't I getting paid? 
And he said, because the guy's smoking all his, uh, I think he said smoking in his nose or something, or sniffing it, whatever, it was, right. something up his nose. And oh. so I said, well, isn't he, well, how's he managing to stay there? He says, I, I, he didn't know. He says, he's behind on everybody. Nobody's getting paid. And I, then I said, what about the rent? Is he even paying the rent? And he says, no, he's getting evicted. Mm. So I said, really? Who's the mm. landlord? And this guy knew, so he gives me the per person's name. And since I knew from just delivering that he sells, that's all I did was deliver. And I just knew he sold so many of just my magazines that he you must be selling tons viable. of other people. Yes, I right. knew it was a good business. And it's retail, I, and my parents were in retail, and so I had a little experience, not too much, but I just knew you just have to pay everybody and yeah. put it on the shelf and people come and buy it, and it's not a hard business. But uh, so I went to that landlord and I asked, is that true that you're evicting him? And she says, yep, it's an eviction for two months now. In those days, it took about three, maybe four months to evict right. somebody. So I said, all right, and after I talked to her, I got the idea, what if I pay her half the rent and until he's evicted. That means the landlord will now be getting at least half instead of nothing. And uh, and uh, it was $1,400, so I had to pay seven. So she said, okay, I'll do it. So I said, okay, I'll bring it. And she said, you got to bring me $700. And uh, I said, okay, but you have to give me a letter that says you'll give me his lease. Just give me the same lease, whatever he has. And so she agreed to that and wrote me the letter. And it took just two months, and mm -hmm. so it cost me $1,400. And uh, she called me up uh, like at six in the morning one day. She says, "Okay, we're standing out in front with the sheriff, and we're you know locking up so I can give you the keys." Wow! And so I get out of bed, you know, run down there, and that. So now I'm in that business, and so that Amazing. started for me. That started that store. Yeah. And uh, what made it very prominent was it was primarily, and I didn't know it at the time. I shouldn't say primarily. About fifty-fifty. Gay, fifty percent of the store was for gay literature, mm -hmm. gay whatever they sold, and uh, the other half was regular straight. Hmm. But I never cared about that. I never even thought about it, and my wife didn't care, and she would have to work. But remember, I'm now in the head of this dialysis uh, business with five dialysis centers. I mean, it's a big operation, sure. so I couldn't work in there. So she would work there, and right. so she said, "That's that's great." So I got her a job basically, <laughs> and but then it kept getting. Bigger and bigger, busier and busier. I mean, it was really a busy place. And uh, at one point, she said, "You have to quit and come and work in the store mm -hmm. with me." And I said, "But why? I can't. You know, I'm involved with this dialysis." She says, "Cause, cause I haven't cashed your last four paychecks. And I don't. I, it's we were doing so well that she didn't wow. need even need the money that I was earning." Wow. And. Uh, so I had to quit. I was reluctant. I didn't really like that, but <laughs> but the store was uh, just a really nice store, and, and and I came to know more and more gay people, sure. and it was uh, just a nice area. And then it turns out the store was getting this real good reputation, mm -hmm. and so gay people were coming from all over the world. It, it turns out it's listed in these travel guides as a good place to go if you're in Los Angeles, and so. Uh, uh, people later, just as when since this movie came out, have come up to me and told me that we like saved their lives and we just had all kinds of wonderful comments, wow. and that they were so sad to see us close. Uh, so I didn't realize we were that involved in the neighborhood or the, you know in the community. Uh, and anyway, that's all part in this that's movie. You'll see. But how did yeah. the Star Trek book sell? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a 
<laughs> that's all near the end of the store's life. So I don't even think we ever had that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in my Star Trek book. <laughs> yeah, well, any, any of them. We had, I vaguely remember some being there, but I didn't, yeah. wasn't, uh, I didn't keep track of them. Like, <laughs> Are you surprised? I mean, here we are all these years later and, uh, you know, people are calling you to talk about Star Trek that you worked on you know, 50, 50 years ago. Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, it's, when it's, I saw it in the book, I was really uh, surprised that anyone would even uh, have uh, no, written like that. I'm amazed that you remember all this. Well, it's a long it was time. good memories. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I even remember a lot more stuff than I'm telling you here, but, <laughs> but there's more technical things, you know, which most people wouldn't be that interested in. You know, like how they developed the black and white film. Funny little, lots of little, you know, tricks of the trade. We'll talk later. Okay. (laughs) Do you remember, was there anything that went horribly wrong that was like, uh, just... just... The the worst was that little piece I told you about where the three colors were not synchronized properly. Yeah. Uh, No, there was, I don't remember any severe bad problem. Uh, uh, That one with the five... Planets, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, for some reason stands out. Yeah, sure. And if that, and that wasn't that bad, but just the fact that it was bad stood out. I mean, so it stays in my memory for some reason. Well, it's so funny. You look at so many uh, movies of, of that era, before that era, you know, that don't hold up. You know, the, the effects are, are laughable, and the stuff that you were doing in 1966 and 67 and, and 68 is extraordinary. And to this day, I mean, it's it's some of the most remarkable and iconic effects of, of all time. So it's great for us to be able to share and hear a little bit about what it was like, you know, back in those days. And I, I got to ask you, I mean, you wore a suit and tie on the floor, nobody else did. Well, that's uh, a funny story. I did that at the beginning for the first few years. Mm-hmm. And but it was a tie. If you if you look close, it's one of those fake ties, you know, where it just has oh. a little <laughs> clip on the back. Right. And one day, the second boss, uh, Don Weed was his name, was more like the manager, mm-hmm. and he would always come every day practically and come in a back room where we worked, and would say, "How come this is not right? Or who did this job?" And he'd screwed it up somehow, right. and he would just come in like that. And one day he opens the door, and I happen to be on the inside, and he sees me, and he, he's mad. I could see he's mad, and he grabs my tie, mm-hmm. and and, it, and when he grabbed my tie to pull him, the tie pulled off, <laughs> and, 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 and about four people were staring, they're all watching this, and everyone starts laughing, including him. And, and at the end, after all the laughter stopped, he had forgotten what he came in about. So then I stopped wearing the tie. But I love that you yeah. were a young guy coming out of film school, looking to make an impression. This is, you know, what Linwood Dunn was a Hollywood legend. So, you know, you you dress a little better than That's other what, people, yeah. you know, and, 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 and it's a, I think it's a lesson that probably some people could benefit Dress for from. the job you want. Yeah. Not for the job you have, exactly. Well, Barry, this is great. Thank you so much for coming down here, all two blocks. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's really great to have you. Ashley, thank you for being back. Thank you. My co-host, as always, a delight. Um, so, and you, the audience, thank you for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie, which a panel of filmmakers curate a fancy theme week of classic movies every Friday. And, of course, Best Movies Never Made every other Monday night. And join us soon for Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast. And uh, um, you can also, uh, now this is exciting. 
You can also stream <laughs> video. <laughs> you can also stream video podcasts of your favorite electric search podcasts like Inglorious Trexperts on Electric Now by downloading Stir, Zumo, or Distro TV on whatever app store you use. And uh, you can watch on your tablet, on your phone, or your TV. See, see us live and in person. How exciting. How exciting to be able to watch and not just listen to us. Unless your kids catch you. Unless, yeah, I know. That's what I'm worried about. My kids catching me watching myself on TV. Also, <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We may read your reviews on a future show. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter, the sound master. He's like a superhero. He's like a sound superhero. And uh, we talked about picture and and, and, vi and and visuals and now we're talking about sound and uh, we gotta have him on the show one day he worked on Star Trek 5 you know who would record it and everyone here at Electric Search Network producers Natalie Miscali back there in the back and of course Dean Devlin without whom the show would not be possible so until next week keep on trekking and gloriously of course engage This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.